This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. You know, context matters, and if you don't see the entirety of a situation or the full context of something, you can miss out terribly on what's going on. I remember one time in college, I was a senior, and I had been working at a restaurant on the the campus of my college, and it was orientation weekend. Uh, The school year was just getting going, and the freshmen had been gathered there, and they'd been in some evening gathering where they were meeting one another, and they were brought to the restaurant for ice cream at the end of the day. And as we were serving some six to 700 members of the freshman class, someone came up and I saw him across the room at the back of the crowd and I I just couldn't resist it. I had to stop and yell out, hey you, your father slept with my mother. And the room went dead silent. And about five or six guys are looking to figure out who's in trouble, right? Until one short freshman starts bursting out laughing And my friends working in the restaurant realize it's my younger brother. And it's a a remarkably odd way to greet him to campus, but there it is. And I think I bought him ice cream that night, I'm not sure. But those who didn't know the context were ready for something terrible, for a fight to break out, for things to go down, for the police to be involved. My two friends who knew that I had a younger brother showing up that night We're the only ones clued in and able to enjoy the moment free of anxiety, right? You know what, that happens happens with reading the Bible. And actually, I want to suggest it could easily happen this week because those of you who, like me, read Psalm 111 yesterday will have seven days before we read Psalm 112. And this morning, what I want to do is help you see that there's a context, a shared context. And if you read the two Psalms in light of each other, mindful of the other, you can actually see something rather remarkable. And it's not random to suggest that reading the two Psalms together is significant and important. If you actually look at them, they're each 22 lines long in poetic meter. And not only that, but they are uh, acrostic in their design. In Hebrew, each of them goes A, B, C, as it were, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, down all the way through the entire Hebrew alphabet with each line beginning with the next letter in turn, all the way through Psalm 111, 
all the way through Psalm 112. On top of that, you see a whole slew of words and ideas that are shared between them. And the end of Psalm 111 concludes with a concept and an idea that begins Psalm 112. And so it's very clear that the psalmist and that God would have us to think these together and to understand the full context, the big picture of what's going on here. And so this morning, I simply want to ask two questions as we look at these two psalms. You can see one in the, printed in the call to worship, the other here in your bulletin insert. We want to ask, what is promised here? And then secondly, how does that promise actually come true? How does it, how does it get delivered in everyday, ordinary life? Well, first of all, let's Let's think about what the promise is that's laid out here. It's rather remarkable. Psalm 111, as Damien mentioned at the beginning of the service, is a psalm about God. It extols God. It praises God. It calls people to praise God. And then it shows you how you can do it, right? Psalm 112, on the other hand, begins talking about the blessed man or woman of the Lord, It's about those who follow God, who trust God, who listen to God. And there's something remarkable we can see that in Psalm 111, certain things are described as being true of God. And in Psalm 112, we're told those are true of the man or woman of God. Notice just a few of these. In 111 verse 3, God's righteousness endures forever. And in 112 verse 6, What verse is that? It's in there somewhere. Verse three again. The man of God's righteousness endures forever. In 111 verse four, God is gracious and merciful. In 112 verse four, the man of God is gracious, merciful, and righteous. In 111 verse four, God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And in 112 verse six, we read of the man of God that he, he will be remembered forever. In 111 verse 7, the works of God's hands are faithful and just. And in 112 verse 5, we read, it's well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, right, or righteousness. It's very clear here that you become like the one you worship. You become like the one you worship. What is true of God becomes increasingly true of the people of God. Now that's not simply a reality that's true of Christians and their God, but is true of people and their gods. In fact, this is something that's true beyond the the world of religion. A couple decades ago, a scholar at the University of Michigan named Paul Zeon ran a large study seeking to assess what marriage, uh, long-term marriage, did to people. (laughs) You might have a lot of thoughts on that if you've been married for a long time. But what he did was gather photos of men and women when they were first married and then photos of them again after they'd been married for 20 to 25 years. And he mixed them up and he gave them to a random sample of people who did not know these couples. And the results were remarkable. When, when shown the original photos from a quarter century before, they couldn't pair people off. They couldn't identify who goes with who. But when looking at photos of couples after they'd lived together for 20 to 25 years, almost to a person, they were able to pair off the couples. Why? 
because you start to actually develop facial resemblance to the person with whom you're married for a long time. Some of you are thinking, oh dear, right? <laughs> no, it's true. If, if you live with someone who's depressed and a scowler, you too are likely to scowl more. And over the course of two to three decades, your facial structure will change. On the other hand, I have good news. If you live with a happy person who smiles a lot, right? Your face, over time, being with someone who expresses joy is actually going to change and you two will start to look a bit more like each other, right? Love changes you. You become more like your beloved. And we see this in the Bible. The prophet Isaiah addresses the gods of the nations and he mocks them on behalf of the true God of Israel. He, he refers to those gods of the nations that are so often depicted in statue form. He, he calls them deaf. He calls them dumb. He calls them incapable of seeing, hearing, or doing anything. And then you may remember in Isaiah 6, when he confronts the Israelites and speaks of their falling into idolatry, he calls them deaf, dumb, and incapable of doing anything. They have taken on the characteristics of the idols. They have become like what they've worshipped unto their ruin, unto their devastation. It has undone them, and they are condemned and confronted by Isaiah with that word. But we have a good word, and we have a, a glorious promise in the Bible that God doesn't simply forgive us, he doesn't simply shake the etch-a-sketch, as it were, and empty your life and your conscience of trouble and difficulty and guilt and shame, but that having restored you to him, having reconciled you unto him, he actually reshapes you. He restores you. He renews you. He makes you more like him. You become like what you worship. You become godly. We see in this psalm one example that I'll highlight, one quality of God's that starts to shape us. And as you consider it, I think you find it's a remarkably appealing and glorious and beautiful picture of humanity that we would all aspire to and that this psalm promises unto you. Notice in Psalm 111 how many times the word forever appears. And in each and every case, it's something that is true of the God who is forever, the God who endures, the God who's steadfast, the God who is constant and unchanging, right? In verse three, his righteousness endures forever. In verse five, he remembers his covenant forever. He doesn't forget, he doesn't falter, he doesn't stumble, he remembers his vows, right? In verse eight, we read that his precepts that are trustworthy, they're established forever and ever, right? They stand. His desire, his will for us doesn't change. You don't have to wonder what he'll want from you, right? His precepts remain forever. Verse 9 tells us that he's commanded his covenant forever. His desire to be with us is not a flippant moment where tomorrow you have to worry that the other arm tied behind God's back will come out and he'll be a miser He'll be uninterested in being with you. No, his covenant has been commanded forever. He wants to be with us forever. And verse 10 tells us that his praise endures forever. He is always worthy of glory, worthy of praise. And so in five different ways, Psalm 111 tells us God is forever. His characteristics are forever. 
His will for us is forever, right? His commitment to us is forever. His praise will be forever. Now, we don't become eternal in the same way God does. We don't become everlasting in the way God is. But we do become godly. We do become godlike. We do become more and more like him as we worship and love him. And so by his grace, we start to see some characteristics take hold in the life of the man or the woman of God. Consider this. In Psalm 112, verse 3, we read, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And that's not something that you can just assume, right? When people come upon riches, when they come upon resources, when they are able to afford to be jerks, they oftentimes are jerks, right? Someone who is wealthy, someone who is rich, someone who has access to security and satisfaction in physical, material resources, they are oftentimes anything but righteous, right? Even keeled, steady, moral, just, merciful, kind, and generous. Oftentimes, as Jesus has warned us, we find that it is incredibly difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Because it's incredibly easy to be so impressed with what's right to hand, right? But not so for the man or the woman of God. We have this remarkable promise that whenever they're in seasons of plenty, whenever they're in times of largesse, whenever they're occasionally experiencing earthly material blessings, when life seems to be coming easy, when there's enough money in the bank, when they're not worried about the first of the month and bills coming due, they're able to remain righteous. They're not cocky. They're not arrogant. They're not self-centered. They don't suddenly become sort of uh, people who think themselves better than others. They remain righteous and steadfast immovable by riches. Notice how a very different scenario is described right thereafter. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Psalm 112 tells us about what happens when they experience the opposite of that plenty. What happens when the righteous experience want? In verse 6, we read this. The righteous will never be moved He'll be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He'll not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries, right? Notice, just as they're steadfast and steady, not impressed by their wealth, they're also not led to despair and anxiety by their lack. The man or woman of the Lord knows that because God is forever, they will be carried. They will be sustained even in seasons that are quite difficult, even in times that are very overwhelming, even in moments that seem to be challenging to the breaking point, right? Because they know and because they've been with and because they delight in a God who is immovable, a God who is constant, a God who doesn't waver, a God who is forever, they become increasingly unbothered and unimpressed by the highs and the lows, by the difficulties and the successes, right? That's rather remarkable. If 
you, like I, journaled through our experience week by week in the CBR journal or some other resource, I suspect you, like I, would have to fess up to, at times, being rather self-centered when things are going well and being completely frazzled or overdone when things are falling apart. This is remarkably appealing to me, the notion of being someone whose heart is steady, right? Who grows in love of that forever God to become someone who is more consistent, right? Someone who is more steadfast. And so that's just one remarkable illustration that that David offers us here in these Psalms of how the man or the woman of God takes on the characteristics of God, that you become what you worship. You become like the one that you love. If that's the promise, though, we really ought to reflect on, how's that happen? I mean, that sounds great, but how do you actually start to become more godly? How do you become more and more like the God that you praise and adore and worship and want to serve, right? Whose kingdom you want to be a part of. And Psalm 111 ends with, and Psalm 112 begins with a key idea that I think we've got to get our hands around, the fear of the Lord. Look at Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding, right? And Psalm 112 picks up right where the preceding psalm ended. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, right? Who greatly delights in his commandments, The fear of the Lord is something that's commended all over the Bible, from Deuteronomy to Ecclesiastes, from Job all the way to the New Testament, the words of Jesus and his apostles. But that's a really weird, strange phrase. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And and why on earth would David say that that leads to blessing and that leads to good practice with wise understanding? Well, it's, it's crucial to understand what he doesn't mean by fear of the Lord, David is not describing someone who's scared, who is worried that God will not embrace or love him, right? We read, for instance, in 1 John 4, as we saw this fall, that perfect love casts out fear, right? Knowing God's perfect embracing love casts out our worry, our anxiety, right? Our anxious fear that God will not love us, that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, at the end of all human history, God will dispense with us and he will want nothing to do with us. Perfect love casts that out because perfect love took on our worst and bore the guilt and shame that it it was due, right? And we see elsewhere the Bible saying that We have been given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, that the Christian is not marked by fear of the Lord in the sense of being anxious and worried, but rather that we're marked by a different kind of fear. And the Bible uses the phrase fear of the Lord to mean something very different from that servile, scared, skittish fear. It speaks also of what Augustine would call it a chaste fear or what Thomas Aquinas called a filial fear, the kind of fear you have for the parent that you love. A number of verses throughout the Bible suggest this. In Psalm 19, verse 9, David says that the fear of the Lord is clean or pure and it endures forever. You don't grow out of it. 
It's not sort of an elementary stage of walking with God where you're, you're worried about him and then you grow out and grow comfortable. It's something that marks your whole journey with God, right? Or the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, he speaks of how we're to bring holiness to its completion in the fear of God, right? Again, fear isn't something that, that's okay for your adolescence spiritually, when you kind of worry about God and you're, you're scared of God, but then you grow out of it as you realize God doesn't wipe you out or something. Rather, holiness in its completion is marked by the fear of God. It, it is something that marks our entire journey. It's something that, that shapes the totality of our walk with God. What is that chaste or filial fear of God? I want to suggest we could sum it up in, in the word Mindfulness. The notion of mindful awe of God. And I'm reminded of an experience I had, again, a number of years ago that illustrates something of this mindfulness. When I was a rising freshman going into high school, I went up to the University of Florida for a summer basketball week where something like 60 or 70 teams from around the southeast came and we played four or five games a day all week long. And I was the freshman there on the team which meant that something that was definitely going to happen was the form of hazing. And so, you know, in the evenings, my teammates would haze me. I didn't know or didn't expect, however, that my coach would haze me, but it happened. We were, in our very first game, we were playing Cape Coral Mariner High School. They had Florida's Mr. Basketball on their team, a guy who later played for the Gators named Teddy Dupay. Teddy Dupay averaged 44 points a game in high school. This guy was incredible. He just ran around the court, shot three-pointers, and scored all day. Well, I was a rising freshman. I wasn't going to score any baskets. But my coach told me, your job is to guard Teddy Dupay. And it gets worse. That wasn't hazing. That was just a suicide mission. The, the, the hazing was, you will follow him on the court wherever he goes. He says, I don't care if we're on offense or defense. You're following Teddy Dupay. You will stay by him. You will be his best friend. The entire game you will follow him. Well, you know, it doesn't take three minutes for this guy first to score a bunch of points on me and second to realize I'm going to run with him wherever he goes on the court because my coach is yelling at me about this. And so he would go to the bench and I'd have to follow him. He would sit back on the other end of the court and I'd have to stay with him, right? He had all sorts of fun. And he scored 36 points on me. It was, I think, the most anybody ever scored me. But I figure that's eight under his average. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> but... My job, my only job, and the only reason I was on that court was mindfulness, to be by this guy and to follow him. Whatever's happening, wherever the ball is, my only question is, where is Teddy? And I go follow him, right? I'm not supposed to go seek out rebounds. I'm not supposed to drive to the basket. I'm not supposed to go hit shots. I am supposed to follow Teddy wherever I go, right? Fearing the Lord is about always having one question on your mind. Where is God? What is God doing? And where is God calling me? There are many voices out there. There are many things you might think through. There are many tasks you might take upon yourself, but one single calling, one ultimate calling. What is God up to? What is God calling me to? How do I be mindful of that first and foremost? Fearing the Lord is, is not, for Christians, about being anxious that God won't embrace us. 
It's not worrying that God will exclude us and cast us out. No, in Jesus we know one who perfectly delighted the Father, one who brought nothing but smiles to the Father, one who is told at his baptism and at his transfiguration that he's the beloved son in whom the Father's well pleased. And yet on the, on the cross, he bore that fear and anxiety because he bore that exclusion and that shame that was ours. And so for us, fear no longer needs to be knees knocking and palm sweating, worrying about what God will or won't do, worrying whether or not God will or won't love us. No, rather it's having been loved, having spent time in God's family, having worshiped and grown in our delight of God, it's being mindful of God, knowing that God is always the most interesting figure in any situation. And God is always the most active agent in any problem, in any position we find ourselves in. And so we want to be mindful. We want to be alert. We want to be aware. What is God up to? What is God doing And we see here that takes two forms, being mindful of what God's doing and being mindful of what God is calling us to do in response. You'll notice in Psalm 111, verse 2, we read, greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, right? First and foremost, thinking back to the great works of the past, the works of creation and exodus, but also looking to our own lives. What are the works God is doing today? How are we mindful of them? How are we alert to his presence? And then notice at the beginning of Psalm 112, the one who fears the Lord is the one who greatly delights in God's commandments, right? I have a wife and a mother. I have employers and bosses. They all have thoughts about what I ought to do with my life. But ultimately, I want to know, I want to be mindful of what does God want from me? What's his command? What's his call? What's his vocation for me this day and in this life? And without denigrating or dismissing or turning the deaf ear to any of those, I want to first and foremost be focused on and fearful of tending to that great call, right? Well, how does that happen? Two words that we're given here. First, we're given a word that God makes it happen. Notice a couple things in Psalm 111. In verse 4, He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He doesn't just leave it up to me to remember to go read my Bible or to study something. He causes his works to be remembered. He ensures that we don't forget him. That's a remarkable promise. But not only that, notice in verse 6, he's shown his people the power of his works. It's not just that I remember what he's done, but that I feel the impression. I feel the importance and the significance of what he has done. That he ensures that we remember him and that we know and experience the vitality, the significance, the priority of his action in our world, his work in our midst. But notice, he, he doesn't just provide those things randomly. There are a couple ways he promises that you can count on experiencing that remembrance and that feeling of his power, right? Here, first and foremost, we read of studying scripture, a way through which, a discipline by which we can remember God's works and we can know the power of God's works, right? And so in Psalm 111 verse two, it speaks not just of being aware of the works of the Lord, but of studying them, 
Anyone who delights in God and what God does, they study. The, the word actually means searches it out, right? Like someone grasping through the dark, seeking to find the end of something, seeking to, to get to know the totality of something. We search out God's works by pouring over his scripture. And that's why CBR reading is so significant for us as a congregation. That it's not only when we're gathered together, tending to God's word, but as we go out on our mission and as we go together in various callings and tasks, we, we go with a common resource where God will make himself to be remembered and where God will make his power to be known to us, where God will shape us more and more to be like him through reading and meditating on his holy word. But notice second, at the beginning and the end of Psalm 111 and again at the beginning of Psalm 112, there's a second discipline, the discipline of worship, right? Praise the Lord, Psalm 111 begins. I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation, right? And the psalm ends with the line, his praise endures forever, Praise the Lord, Psalm 112 begins. The notion of worship, and not just individual worship, you singing to God in your car, right? Or saying a prayer of thanks during the morning shower, wherever those moments of piety may fall in in your life. Now, this is talking about gathered worship, congregational worship. Psalm 111, verse 1 is very clear. This is what we do together. And it's a discipline where we, by delighting in God, by focusing on God, by being mindful together, to talk about the, the one being who's most significant and who so easily gets overlooked, overlooked by the newspaper headlines, overlooked by the debates on TV, overlooked, if we're honest, so often by our hearts and our own recountings of our day, but who we come together and, and we rehearse the story. We rehearse the doings of this God. And we offer praise unto this God before each other. And I find that's one of the most significant moments of my life as a Christian, being able to, to praise God with others because it's a significant reminder that I'm not crazy, that there are other people out there who think that the, the tomb's empty and that our lives aren't the same, right? And that there's hope for this world. And that's not a small thing. I mean, I don't know if you've read the newspaper. I don't know if you've watched TV. I don't know if you've been attuned in doing self-inventory of your own failings and struggles this week, but it's not a straightforward thing that there's hope for the world or for me. And so being able to look around and being able to listen to others who can speak and confess to God's action, to God's doing, to God's promise, to God's presence in their lives, that is a strengthening, encouraging, enlivening discipline. It's something we're made for. When Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, the word of Christ dwells richly with you. And then he says, when you're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, when you're offering thanksgiving to God, when you're together. And so if we're a people who need to be mindful, who need to fear the Lord, we need not only God's word, but we need one another, that we might sing it and say it and point one another to it. And so we have this glorious blessing this morning of practicing that, of practicing with good understanding and mindfulness the fear of the Lord, of focusing our minds and hearts upon the works of the Lord, and prayerfully seeking out the commands of God, what he would have you to do, what mission he would have for your life, what calling he would have for this day, 
and we can go before him and seek to confess that so often we, we care more about what our boss or our mom or our friends or our culture would somehow suggest is most important. So often we, we act as though we're our own gods, but we're called to fear the one true God, to be mindful of him and, and to raise him high with our study of his word, with our praise of his name. Let's turn to God now in prayer and ask that as we do that this morning, we might become increasingly like him. We might be shaped to fear him, to revere him, and to be mindful all of our days before him. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that so often we are happy just to do the religious thing, to pray, to sing, and so often it can be about so many other things than the exalting of your name and the seeking out of your will. And we confess that. And we ask this morning that you would help us to fear you, to be mindful of you, to always be cued into your presence in our midst, to be reminded of your goodness to us in the past, and to be leaning into your promises for our future. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, the one who bore our shame and guilt, who bore the sin and death that we deserve, that we might not be excluded from your presence, but embraced by your love. And we pray that now, knowing that, we might fear you, we might be mindful of all that you've done and all that you have and all that you want us to be, even now by your Spirit's grace. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.